I'm just going to go out on a limb here and suppose that there were probably not very many of us who, when we woke up this morning, thought to ourselves, you know what I could really go for this morning is a reading of the entirety of Paul's letter to Philemon. <laughs> you just heard the whole thing. That is the whole letter as it has come down to us. It's probably not on anybody's top 10 list. This funny little letter that Christian commentators have never really known quite what to do with because on first glance, it doesn't actually seem to say very much about the life of faith. It seems to be primarily about this like first century squabble over what to do about slavery, or in this case, about one particular enslaved person, this guy named Onesimus. Paul is writing this letter to Onesimus's owner, a guy named Philemon, who is the leader, the overseer of a small community of disciples. They probably meet in Philemon's home, probably in, in Colossae or somewhere like that. And Philemon's slave, this guy named Onesimus, has escaped from his master. He's fled to Paul, who is under house arrest, we assume, in Rome. The letter is a, a little strange on first reading because on first glance, it looks like Paul is sending Onesimus back to his master bearing this letter as a kind of apology. That's the way the letter has traditionally been read by Christians. It's certainly the way that this letter was preached and used as a kind of a proof text in the 1850s and 60s in this country, when many Christians, including, I am ashamed to say, not a few Episcopal priests and bishops, used the letter to Philemon to defend the Fugitive Slave Act. That was an act that Congress passed in 1850. It required all Americans in free states and slave states to, ap to return apprehended escaped slaves to their owners, just as Paul seems to be doing in this letter. If the Apostle Paul had an opportunity to protest against slavery and refused to do so, the thinking went, who are we to do otherwise? God must be cool with it. That's what they reasoned. God must be okay with people owning other people. Not everybody was taken in by this reasoning. One of my favorite stories about a sermon preached on Philemon is told by this white Presbyterian pastor who was preaching actually to a group of enslaved Africans in 1850. He wrote, I was preaching to a large congregation on the epistle to Philemon, and when I insisted upon fidelity and obedience as Christian virtues in servants, and upon the authority of St. Paul condemned the practice of running away, one half of my audience deliberately rose up and walked off by themselves. Good for them. Good for them. Then as now, I suspect those who have actually experienced injustice know how to recognize hogwash when they hear it preached. Enslaved people know the Bible. Right? They knew these stories about a God who sets prisoners free, who carries the slaves of Egypt over the Red Sea into freedom, and then proceeds to drown the slave owners so that the children of Israel see their former captives dead on the seashore. That's what Exodus says. They know that the God of Israel, the God of Jesus, the God of Paul, has no patience for those who would attempt to possess and control the body of another human being. And they took Jesus seriously when they heard him say, as he did in this morning in Luke's gospel, you cannot be my disciple unless you give up all your possessions. It was actually a formerly enslaved man, an African named Olada Equiano, who first promulgated this idea a hundred years before the Fugitive Slave Act in like the 1740s and 1750s. He said, if Jesus says no private possessions, the whole idea of slavery is inherently anti-biblical at its core. Equianus wrote, if we begin with the assumption 
that Paul is opposed to slavery because Paul understands the liberating gospel of Christ, then Paul, in the letter to Philemon, has got to be up to something much more interesting than just returning a master's human property to him with an apology letter. For Equiano, and for several centuries now of interpreters who have resisted the dominant interpretation of this text, what Paul is doing in the letter to Philemon is actually kind of radical. Paul tells Philemon that he, Paul, could just order Philemon to do his duty and set Onesimus free. But Paul and Onesimus are kind of in cahoots here. They're manipulating the Roman legal system rather cleverly. They know that if, in the first century, if a master transfers an enslaved person into the care of a third, pro- of a third party by his own free will, according to the Roman legal, legal principle of Manumissio Testamento, that third party, in this case, the third party is Paul, right? That third party can free the enslaved person and restore him or her to full citizenship in the Roman Empire. Paul is not sending Onesimus back to his master to submit to somebody's godly authority. Paul and Onesimus are working the system. They're working the system to Onesimus' advantage because they understand the broader principle at work here that according to the gospel of Christ, the idea that one person can own another person is anathema. It's a moment of reckoning, this moment that the letter to Philemon preserves from a a society that existed a couple thousand years ago, this group of Christians who were trying to sort out in their context what it means to follow the words and teachings of Jesus Christ in a society that often asks very different things of them. Paul's words to Philemon preserve the high stakes of that choice, right? They preserve this moment of reckoning. You can choose to do the right thing. Do the right thing, Paul urges Philemon. Or you can choose to retain what you think of as your own property. That's a right society gives to you. In fact, as Paul seems to suggest, if Philemon chooses to do the right thing, he may suffer consequences, right? He doesn't just, doesn't just lose his economic investment. He loses some of his privilege, some of his status in the community. People make fun of him, right? Paul is asking Philemon to renounce some of the privilege and power that Roman society grants to him as a free male citizen, and instead to follow the clear teaching of Jesus Christ that's preserved in Luke's words, none of you can become my disciples until you give up all your possessions, including your human possessions. The abolitionist poet James Russell Lowell wrote in 1845, once to every man and nation, comes the moment to decide. It's a long poem he wrote for the the Spectator, I think, in Boston. It's called The The Present Crisis. It was later turned into a a popular Protestant hymn. We don't have it in our hymnal, but it's an interesting text. The language is a little patriarchal. The sketch of humanity is a little black and white. It's this sort of stark choice that Lowell presents between good and evil. It's not unlike Psalm 1 that we chanted this morning, right? This clear bifurcation between the righteous on the one hand and the wicked on the other hand. That's always the temptation in religious thinking, right? To split the world up into the good people and the bad people, virtue and vice, blessing and curse. We know that things are always more complicated than that, that every religion, every society, every family, every individual represents a mixed bag of blessings and curses, good and bad, life and death. None of us are pure. There's no such thing as an unmixed motive. And yet we're presented with these these moments of reckoning, as Paul and Philemon were presented with one a couple thousand years ago, when the moral stakes are high when the consequences of our actions are grave, how are you going to choose? Once to every man and nation comes a moment to decide, James Russell Lowell wrote. 
in the strife of truth with falsehood for the good or the evil side. Some great cause, God's new Messiah, offering each the bloom or the blight, parts the goats upon the left hand and the sheep upon the right. And the choice goes by forever, twixt that darkness and that light. Moses says to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy, I have put before you this day life and prosperity or death and adversity. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness that I have set before you this day life and death, blessings and curses. And there is a choice to be made. This is how God works, right? We are never, we're never forced into doing the right thing. Instead, we're given all these resources, resources of intellect and heart and feeling and will, the ability to, to think through our actions, to count the cost, as Jesus urges in Luke, to make a choice that tends either towards life and freedom or towards death and destruction. Maybe that is black and white thinking. I mean, some would suggest that that is the moment in which we find ourselves as human people. That's a question that's beyond my pay grade. What I know from a short lifetime, but a, a lifetime of studying these weird texts, having them pounded into me as a child, and then, and then choosing them as an adult, right? These texts that I've chosen to base my life and my choices on. What I know from these texts is that we are presented, maybe only a few times over the course of our life, with these moments of reckoning. And those are the moments that prove our moral character. When those moments come, if we're paying attention, we are also given the resources we need to respond wisely and well. And call me crazy, but I actually believe that this dusty old collection of letters and documents, this grab bag of stories and legal codes and temple worship guides and building plans, historical chronicles, court testimonies, letters from a guy named Philemon, a guy named Paul to a slaveholder named Philemon. I mean, call me crazy, but I think there's stuff in this Bible that has the power to help us choose wisely, the power to guide us in those moments when we're feeling lost and alone and bereft of hope. I mean, that's why we teach our kids this stuff. I mean, they're downstairs right now. You saw them all up here. Right now, they're being introduced to the teachers who are going to guide them through these stories once again this year, the stories that have shaped not only our culture, but these stories that have the power to shape our choices if we let them work their magic. You have to forgive me for being a little bit nostalgic this morning. Ten years ago, on this Sunday, fall kickoff Sunday, Lutherans call it Rally Sunday, right? The first Sunday of the program year, ten years ago, was my first Sunday here at Trinity. I was downstairs. I was on the floor with Trinity's five- and six-year-olds. They are freshmen and sophomores now. <laughs> They're 16. I knew them at five and six. That's crazy for me. But ten years ago, on this Sunday, we all trooped downstairs together, just as a new generation of Trinity kids did this morning. We sat there on the floor, and we started telling these stories, right? Creation and the flood, the great family, the Exodus story, Advent, Epiphany, baptism, Easter. Ten years ago, ten years later, I'm upstairs now. I'm in the pulpit. I'm not downstairs on the floor. But we're telling the same stories, right? Upstairs and downstairs, from the pulpit and on the basement floor. This is what we do. We tell and we retell stories about a God who is fundamentally interested in setting people free, who is always calling holy people to expand our ideas of what justice and righteousness look like, a God who will not let us alone to stew in our despair, 
but asks us to pick ourselves up and make a choice. I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. You're adults now, God says. I've created you with wisdom and a will and a brain and a heart. Use that stuff. Your work is to use those faculties carefully and deliberately in order to make good choices. And when it comes time to choose, when you come to this moment of reckoning, once to every man and woman comes a moment to decide, when that moment comes upon you, God says, if you want to be my disciple, you've got to choose life. Choose life, choose freedom, choose justice, choose mercy and forgiveness so that you and your descendants can live out your lives in this land. There's this, there's this ancient promise at work in these texts. It's a promise that lies still unfulfilled, that when we align ourselves with the promise of life and blessing, when we, when we make the decision to choose a life of meaning over the gods of death and destruction, when we become a part of something that is bigger than our feeble, mixed-bag human efforts, then we bring about justice. Sometimes justice looks complicated and compromised in this world. The actual living out of it is never black and white. There are always these complicated questions. There's gray areas and moral ambiguities, right? We know that. But sometimes you've got to pick a side. There are moments of reckoning, these moments of terrible clarity, when the truth becomes undeniable and the moral stakes are too high to be blithely dismissed. In those moments, when we choose wisely, when we stand up against the forces of slavery and oppression, then we become a part of this story. It's the story that our kids are being invited into, even as we speak. The story of a great human family down through the generations, people who have chosen life and blessing, even in the most dire circumstances. The despairing are healed. The enslaved are set free. Onesimus and Philemon understand themselves not as a master and a slave, but as brothers. And slowly but surely, our world inches forward out of the dark night of death into something that looks different, something better, something far more beautiful. The kingdom of God, the family of God made manifest in a community of people who have been formed and trained to act with courage and to choose rightly, to choose life and to choose it well.